I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why. Presented by 1888. Every week, we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. Hello, and welcome to the How the Why, brought to you by 1888. My name is John Barrett Ingalls, and today we are connected with Karen Tay Yamashita, author of numerous books, uh, including I Hotel, which was nominated for the National Book Award, and also professor at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, professor of literature. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, my pleasure. So I'm curious as to when, you know, I love when I talk to authors, just finding out about when the realization that this is what I want to do happened. Like, where, do, you, do you remember, like, was it early on? Was it something that came over time that I am a storyteller, that I want to use this language and the written word to... to follow this path Hmm. I would say that I didn't know for many many years I I really didn't know what I wanted to do although I knew I was shy and that probably my life would be writing of some sort and I was interested in college in writing for theater Um, so I would put mouths into you know into the mouths of others, or hmm. words to the mouths of others. However, <clears throat> I didn't think about it because I thought finally I would go into anthropology and journalism, and so I got a fellowship to go to uh, Brazil to study the Japanese immigration to Brazil, and that was a Watson fellowship. And um, so I left to do that. I'd never been to Brazil. I couldn't speak Portuguese. My Japanese was rudimentary. Um, I took a crash course in Portuguese and, and left for Brazil. And while I was there in the first few months, it was so hot, I could hardly go out. It was, it was, um, it was overcoming for me to be in such a humid place. And um, so I stayed inside a room and I wrote um, a short story, which I sent eventually to Amerasia Journal and forgot about. And many months later, they wrote to me and said that I had won their first prize. I didn't know I had sent it as a, as a for any kind of award, huh. but I had won their first prize for a short story. And um, at that moment, I guess I, I had some sort of validation that I that I could actually write. But I I thought that I really needed to research in order to do it, and so I continued my project in anthropology in Brazil and um, began to do oral histories and interviews of Japanese Brazilians um, and then got, got stuck with a story <clears throat> about a commune and uh, a colony of Japanese Brazilians who had immigrated 
in about 1920s um, to um, remote areas of the state of Sao Paulo. And I researched that for the next two or three years and decided at some point that I could not go into anthropology because I could not speak or I could not read Japanese. Hmm. I felt that as an academic I would be a failure. So I thought, and this, you know, I was only 20, right? So I thought, well, I could just turn this whole thing into a big fiction novel. Uh, and so it would be a historic novel. And that's, uh, that's how I started to research that story and to begin my writing. Now, I, yeah, and, and I had no idea what it meant to write um, historic fiction. <laughs> Were you a fairly avid reader at, at a young age? I, I was. I mean, yeah, uh, and, and certainly my parents were. Um, and, I, you know, since they have passed, all their books are in, in the big library here, and I realized that they were, what they were reading and what I was kind of attached to at the time. Certainly it was James Michener, you know, his novel, like Hawaii, not that, um, and, and they, they had all of these biographies and histories, American histories, um, and whatever was going on in the 60s and 70s uh, that was politically of interest, those books were down in that library. So I must have been influenced by... Sure. Yeah. Um, so then you started tackling this big piece of work, and uh, what was the writing process? Like, what was that like? Coming from somebody who didn't even know that that's what they wanted to do. I mean, did you have, I mean, you've taken creative writing probably at some point, but like putting together a novel. I've never taken a class. Um, I, I graduated from Carleton College. They had, I think, a class in poetry. But for, most, for the most part in those years, the professors said that the great works had already been written. They wouldn't like it. But, and that, um, that I had nothing new to do, and that I would be copying um, some previous dead writer, I guess. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't have a kind of, I didn't have an ambition like that, but I did have an ambition to tell this new story. I think I didn't know. And I went at it, went at it as a, a research project um, in which I interviewed, oh, several hundred people uh, for this project. Anyone who had been associated with this commune. It was a commune of maybe two, 20 families, and each family maybe had, oh, from five to 10 members in the family. So, and by this time they had, they had split, they had spread out ac across the country. I went to look for them. I wanted to know what that story was. Um, so I had notebooks and notebooks of, um, of what I recorded about their, um, their stories. Uh, I had some, uh, some audio recordings, but uh, after time I, I abandoned the uh, tape recorder. And uh, then I turned all of this material into note cards. Really thought I, I'd have to juggle it. So I had this gigantic box of uh, note cards. Uh, with all the names and with all the details, and I was—I thought I would juggle these note cards and turn it into a story. Um, I think the first um, rendition 
of the book that would become Brazil Mother was <clears throat> had I don't know how many characters we have fifty characters <laughs> and uh, and of course it was unwieldy and um, impossible. <laughs> so I rewrote that book literally from beginning to end five times. Wow. Um, I would say that I learned how to write by writing that book. Did you have uh, someone working with you? Was there an editor working with you at, in the early stages? No, because I, I, didn't, I didn't even know what the publishing world was. Hmm. Um, and I had no idea. I mean, if I knew what I know now, I would never have done any of that. I would have abandoned it you know, <laughs> years ago. <laughs> but I kept thinking, oh, this is my project, and I owe it to these people, and how... Dozens of people I'd interview for hours and hours, and sometimes I had lived in their houses and lived with these people. I felt really beholden to um, completing this project. Um, they never said, you know, you're never going to do this. I think they just thought it would happen. Right. But of course, by the time it did, most of them had died. Now, how did you get connected with Coffee House Press? Ah, well, I had begun to send uh, queries around for the original project, which was on this historic novel, The Brazilians, The Japanese Brazilians, um, and got no responses. And so I put it aside, and I thought that what I would do would be to write something that perhaps could get published. I didn't know. So um, my husband had, he had these stories that he would tell um, just at dinner. And they would be funny short stories. They're very typically Brazilian, but also something maybe Borgesian. They were, um, they were comical, but also uh, fun. And, and I thought, well, I'll take these funny stories and then write a collection of them. So I started to do that. By the time I got to the sixth story, I, I called him up at work and I said, well, by then we were, actually we had immigrated into my own country. Hmm. <laughs> and, that, and my husband had immigrated and we had brought our children. And uh, I was working at a television station and he was uh, working for, as a draft, he's an architect, and he was working um, to draft um, houses for this architect. Uh, and I asked him, well, why don't I take these six um, characters and turn it into a novel, which I did. And um, so I would get on the phone with him during the day and try to figure out where this novel was going. And that was, that was actually the book I finally sent to um, Coffeehouse. Hmm. That was through the arc of the rainforest? Yes. And having that connection <clears throat> opened you up to getting uh, Brazil Maru uh, published through them as well. Right. Um, that book, well, and of course I'd, I sent that manuscript out too. I have a, a whole stack of rejections for that. <laughs> I don't know why Coffeehouse took it. Um, but Alan Kornblum, who was the uh, publisher at the time, um, I guess he liked it. Uh, and so after that, when you normally sign, and again, I had no idea what what could happen, but when you sign these contracts, I probably just signed it. Um, you sign 
you signed to show the the publisher your next book. Hmm. And he said, well, what about that next book? And I said, well, it's here, but you won't want it. And he said, let us be uh, the judge of that. So I sent him this historic novel, because, and it was hardly anything like the first. The, the other had been sort of a surreal, fantastic, more magical, real book. And this was, I thought it was straight historic fiction. Um, and um, he really liked it. He gave me a small advance. I think he gave me $1,000. That was my advance. <laughs> and he said, could you rewrite it? <laughs> Um, and I did. I spent um, another, let's see, it was published in 92, so I spent another couple of years rewriting it again from beginning to end, maybe two more or three times. Wow. So, like, all told, like, how many times did you rewrite that book? I think five. Wow, wow. Okay. Well, then you have two books under your belt. And now you, and they're published. You have two books that you've written and two books that you've published. Was this the moment that you said, huh, maybe this is what I'm going to do or what I'm here to do? I guess I was stuck doing that, isn't it? That, but I was still working at the television station. You know the television stations. You're in Los Angeles. Sure. It's KCET. Oh, yeah. And in those years, it was called, it was Channel 28, and it was, um, it's all, it, it had its offices on Sunset over near Vermont. Okay. That's yeah. Right yes. by where I am right now. <laughs> Scientologists have since bought the building. It was Monogram Studios, was the old studios. And I was working, I worked there for, I would say, 13 years as a secretary. And, uh. Oh, they probably know this now and they don't care. But I, I spent half the time writing this. <laughs> so, so, all right, then you're working at the studios. You have two books published. And how did Tropic of Orange come up? Where, like, what was the, the pull, the draw to start this story focusing on these characters and these seven days here in Los Angeles? Well, it had, it had a lot to do with working at the, at the television station. Um, and, and you notice things there in the book which have to do with um, satellite television sure. projection. Um, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a TV producer in it. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember John Retzek, who passed away, but he was head of... He ran. He had a uh, a radio show called the Car Show hmm. on KPFK, and um, <clears throat> he um, I carpooled with him. He had lived in San Pedro, and he'd come by Gardena, and he picked me up, and we carpooled to work every day. Uh, and so he his his interest in cars had a lot of influence on that book, and also just driving up and down the Harbor Freeway every morning. Right. And um, so I began to think about uh, writing a book about Los Angeles that had characters in it that I, 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 I did not see in novels about Los Angeles at the time. And this, um, so I wanted to 
Well, that that was the intention. So I, I set out with seven characters. The other thing I was doing was I was doing accounting for the engineering department. And uh, one of my bosses came over and said, you know, you really need to learn this program. It's called, uh, it wasn't called Excel at the time. It was a, it's called Lotus. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <Remember>? Absolutely. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> um, but it's me. And so I started to learn Lotus, and I thought, this is amazing. You can make columns. And I found out ways to keep all the text in the columns or in the cells. And I thought, oh, well, I can actually write into the cells all of this material. So I actually began writing this novel. I put seven days across the top of the spreadsheet and seven characters down the bottom. And then I began to fill in these columns, hmm. cells. So, um, what, seven times seven, there are 49 chapters, and um, that's how the book began. Now, did you, you knew, did you know in, in the writing of it, which were some of the characters that you came up with first? Did you know what your seven were going to be, or if it was going to be seven or more? Well, there, I had uh, written a, a very short story. It was supposed to be a children's story, and uh, it got published in some kind of supplement for the LA Times. Um, and it was called, I think it was called The Orange. And it was about, and it was one of those, it was one of those many stories that my husband would tell over dinner. So he had the story about uh, an orange that was growing on, in, in his mind, the tropical cancer because it's Brazil. And that the orange tree would move in the wind and then finally an orange in which the Tropic of Cancer ran through it, fell off the tree, and it would change the coordinates um, of the city and the landscape. Hmm. Um, and so I was fascinated by that idea. And one day, of course, I called him up from work and I said, uh, would you mind if I moved the orange to the Tropic of, not, he, I mean, he had it at the Tropic of Capricorn, I'm right. sorry, which is in Brazil. Uh, and actually runs through the city of Sao Paulo, where we live. And we, I said, can I, can I move it uh, to the north, to the Tropic of Cancer? And he said, fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> so, that's, um, so that's what I did. And so that the original story was just about that orange and a young boy who moves across um, and travels across the border with that orange and changes the coordinates of um, the city. Um, and I, I thought, you know, this is really the kind of the arc story of a longer piece, I think, and because I'm interested in novels, so I thought, this is the arc of a novel. What could I do? And so I thought that in seven days, we would see the movement of this orange. So mm -hmm. that, that was the timeline I had. And then I had to have characters, and I wanted a... Um, I knew I wanted a, a Japanese-American who had been in camp in Manzanar. I wanted um, a, a worker who was coming from Southeast Asia, I thought Vietnamese, um, and I wanted, I wanted a um, Mexican-American or a Chicano in there. Uh, and those were some of the characters I thought. And I also needed a, a worker um, or laborer who would be coming from the south, hmm. bringing this orange in. And um, 
I was particularly fascinated with the work of Guillermo Gomez Pena at the time. And um, I thought Gomez Pena should bring this orange in. Um, I never asked for this favor, but that's, that's pretty much him in the story. I mean, it's, but then of course it's not him because I, I, I merged Pablo Neruda with Eduardo Galeano with, you know, all sorts of folks uh, with, with the, the wrestlers um, that uh, uh, Gomez Pena used to inhabit in his mm. storytelling, he still does. Um, and all of these sort of these were mixed in, and uh, that became our content. Oh, it's, it's amazing and really super fun to read. And then now, at this point, you have three novels published, and you're getting attention for these novels. And you're getting awards. Is this the moment that you, at, at what point did you decide to go and start teaching literature and creative writing? Well, I, I think I could have, I might have done it sooner, but I, I had a family to support. Sure. One of the things that was really important to me uh, were benefits. And medical benefits. So I couldn't <clears throat> leave the KCT job without benefits. And none of the lecturing jobs or teaching gave me full benefits. And uh, so I, 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 I didn't do it for a long time. Finally, um, my husband came up to, uh, to UC Santa Cruz to the agroecology program and uh, He's, he lived in a tent, and he learned, um, uh, you know, organic agriculture here. And so while he was doing that, every weekend or every other weekend, I would drive the kids up to see him, and we would hang out at UC Santa Cruz uh, while he, you know, was hoeing or making compost, <laughs> doing something. And uh, one of my friends uh, is... Is, uh, lives up here, and she's married to a professor of history. And both of them said, you know, Karen, why don't you pass your CV around? Maybe you could teach her. So I did. And uh, the year after he finished that program, I was offered a lecturing job here to teach creative writing. And finally we thought that I should try to do this. So I got of absence from, from my job and did that for a quarter, I believe it was the spring or the winter. And then very soon after that, um, a person who has now is, who is one of my great friends in Japan invited me to come to Japan uh, to take on a um, fellowship there for six months. And uh, I cobbled together some money that the Japan Foundation gave me, but also uh, I received from my aunt who had died. And uh, I took my whole family to Japan for six months. Uh, and by then, KCT said, Nah, can't have a leave of absence, you gotta go. So right. a chance, and we left. And I left. Um, so we were there for six months, and then after that, uh, UC Santa Cruz had an opening, and I took um, a tenure-track job here. So I've been, I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed. 
Now, how did teaching and stepping into this role as an educator, um, how, how does that or does it affect the way that you write or even how you approach your own writing? Now, that's, that's a good question. And I, I wonder how it is for others. But one of the things that I like about teaching here is that is the freedom you've just given me. I, I never knew that academics got research um, funding, hmm. that you would get a free computer, that all of these things. I mean, you got to do it. <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, and I, I, was, I was rather shocked because I had to, in 13 years, I had to cobble together sick time and also vacation time. And I got six weeks and I thought that was amazing. But, you know, as a teacher, you get a whole summer and then you get research funding and uh, you have access to an entire library um, and its extension. So it was quite amazing for me. The other thing that has been very free here, and I don't know it's true for all people who teach, is that um, I was very free to teach what I wanted to teach. So I decided that if, if you're at a research university, you should be teaching what you are researching um, or researching what you're teaching. Right. So I would always bring into my syllabi and my classes something that I was really interested in or needed to know. Um, and that's always, and that conversation with students and myself and my, uh, and I'm, you know, my faculty friends and colleagues has been really rewarding and has, it's I think, well always... Now, there he is. <laughs> but has always furnished, um, you know, um, I think maybe um, theoretical and intellectual basis. And so I'm now, after all these years, what I could never understand about what my colleagues were saying, I, I understand maybe 50% now. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, that research opportunity helped you out grateful greatly with uh putting together i hotel correct yes. um i'm curious uh in reading it it feels very important right now um with everything that's going on and maybe it it, it, it will always be important but it feels reminiscent of uh you know what a lot of people are experiencing with what's happening in the world now as, as a writer and also as a professor how do you traverse this unique situation we see politically well i i learned a great deal of the, uh, from researching that book simply by talking to the people who were the uh, activists and actors uh, in that period, hmm. and what kinds of situations they found themselves in, their their positive reactions to it, but their humorous, but also their cynicism. And um, so I had very mixed feelings about, um, you know, how they acted in those years and how we all acted. Um, and I realized that, that those are lessons that... Um, need to be reviewed, I, I would say. So 
as we move into um, another age of activism, but uh, but also something quite different. I think. I think that there. I think on the right in those years there was a sense of integrity. There's none of it now. Yeah. That's really disturbing. So how do you fight? Um, or how do you resist? Uh, a regime that has an integrity. That's very, very troubling. I think that's one of the big things that we worry about. In the meantime, <clears throat> in the last two, well, the last about five years, I've been researching um, my own family history. So my, my parents have both died, and, and actually all of, almost all of their siblings are gone. And on my father's side, there were seven siblings, and all of them were sent to camp. They were interned at Topaz in Utah. And uh, so what we discovered, my cousins and I, is that there's this, there's this cache of um, correspondence that they kept. Not all of it, there are gaps in it, but you can tell what their letter writing was like during those four years, um, sending letters to camp and out of camp, trying to get jobs, trying to get out of uh, Topaz, and uh, what their, who helped them and how, what their situations were during those years. So we since created this large archive, um, which is now at Special Collections at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and then uh, my niece in particular has been uh, digitizing letters and uploading them to a website. In the meantime, I wanted to take one particular part of that was to look at um, the civil rights and, and of, or let's let's say the the broader implications of civil rights uh, that are attached to uh, the internment of Japanese Americans during the war. And uh, so I've been thinking and writing a lot about that. That book is going to come out this year. Hmm. I believe in September by podcast. So appropriate. We call Letters to Memory. It's scary to me that it's this year. Hmm. Uh, and I, I never had that. I had an expectation that I would tell the story of internment in a very different way. However, I think that the expectation is that all of this is so relevant to what has been happening now. Sure, absolutely. What is, how does your role as a, a professor reflect the times i mean how how do you how do you navigate your thoughts and opinions when dealing with students well um you know i i teach i teach creative writing so i have small classes um and that's a specific task I have, and I don't, I don't have an intention to steer students a certain way. I just want to make what they want to do in their writing better. Sure. Um, but I also teach Asian American literature, and uh, as, as, the, as the movement of, of literary production, but also political events uh, occur, I'm always pulling in uh, books and films and uh, discussions that have to do with the current uh, time. Hmm. Have not, I'm not teaching right now. I, I was on sick leave and then I was on sabbatical. 
and am still. So I, I don't have a, that opportunity for teaching those large classes. Uh, and that's a, that's a forum for beginning discussions, for asking questions, um, for having students engage with uh, the history and the history as it's remembered, but also um, a cultural um, space of the refugee in particular, uh, the migrant worker, migration, and a whole history of um, rejection of uh, Asians uh, from this country because of their, you know, their, their, their lands of origin, but also their race. Hmm. Well, it's a heavy place to end, but we are out of time. Uh, Karen, though, I really appreciate all the work that you do, and I think that you're an amazing writer, and I look forward to your next work, but I also appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for yeah, doing the interview. <laughs> This has been The How, The Why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and yours truly with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How, The Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.